This is Parking in Bitterman Circle for July 5th, 2020, number 47. Hey there, it's Aaron. Welcome to The Circle. Today's visitor is lighting director and guitarist Rich Lachlan, who guides us between the sacred and the profane and shares the inspiration of whipped cream. Who are you and where are you from? Well, my name is Rich Lachlan and I am from Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And uh, why are you here today? What do you do now? Well, let's see. Why am I here was because um, you were kind enough to ask me to be involved in this. And I've got nothing else but time on my hands, so I'm happy to do it. <laughs> you know, so. I'm with you. <laughs> Did you have the the chance to study the arts when you were a kid, when, you know, when we were going to school? Was that well, part of your upbringing? No. And, and I tell you, you know, I, as a kid, I watched Sunday mornings, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Do you remember that cartoon at all? Absolutely. So, you know, they would talk about, I think it was frostbite Hills or wherever they were at, but, uh, uh, Bullwinkle said how he went to what's a matter you. Do you, do you remember that? I certainly and do. It, and that is kind of where I come from. I come from a world university I was never damaged by the school system of the United States. You know, I, I'm probably, I don't know how to say this right. School is the right thing, but, and uh, no comparison to Leonardo da Vinci, but he used to say um, that I'm uneducated, but I have the ability to observe, you know? So mm -hmm. I never really went to school. I made it through freshman year of high school. And then I worked in a work program for a little bit. And then I was playing in the clubs, you know, uh, guitar in a little band. Before I was old enough to drink, I was working the Chicago circuit. And that's kind of where I got my intro into, you know, uh, production, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, lights, uh, backline, you know, and all those kind of things. But as a player first, you know, and, and by no means am I saying that I was any good. I just really loved doing it, you know. I, I, I myself uh, was playing in clubs when I was 14. Right. And a bunch, bunch of the other musicians were older <laughs> than I am, but I had a drum kit and, uh, you know, and that's where it began, you know. Yeah. When I started doing this professionally, and I don't mean to jump ahead at all, <clears throat> but it was very rare to meet someone who had gone to school for what I was doing, you know, and, and then eventually that started to increase and I would see it was 50-50, but most of all the guys I was doing with this all, you know, somehow uh, bumped into it, fell into it, or were frustrated musicians that gotcha. had a background with the gear. Mm -hmm. Did you have a mentor of any sort? Yeah, actually, uh, you know, lighting-wise, um, his name was Eddie, Eddie Schumann, and he had a tiny little lighting company called Ultimate Stage, and I started working there when I was like 17. <clears throat> the band had kind of broken up, so um, 
you know, uh, would go out and set up little lighting shows with him, with this band uh, called The Boys, The Boys from Illinois. They had uh-huh. a record out, and uh, they were quite popular at the time. You know, they uh, played to a 1,000 people or so, and at the time, you know, when bands could cut a deal with the door and a percentage of the bar, and uh, we'd do world tours of the Midwest, you know, mm-hmm. uh, me and a couple of guys in the front of a bobtail <laughs> driving all around you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, you know, Michigan, Indiana. And, uh, but Eddie, uh, Eddie taught me a lot about, uh, doing things. And, you know, at some shows I would be setting up the lights and then I was also the back line. I'd be doing guitars cause I had a guitar, you know, background. So just, and helping stack the PA. And so just be doing a little bit of, of everything, you know? So the front of the, the truck was cleaver. Uh, Scott Larson, who worked at DB Sound for a long time, and and myself, and uh, three of us would drive that truck, as I say, everywhere and uh, set up shows. But uh, Eddie showed me a lot about this kind of stuff. What did uh, What did he give you that you still carry? What do you, What did he give you uh, uh, a set of values or a, or just some uh, a, a general overview that kind of uh, affected you and still does? I I guess, you know, Eddie was kind of like a chameleon, you know, um, because I met him when I was 14, like you were talking about, at, uh, at a guitar store, Greg George's, and he was wildly flamboyant. You know, he had white hair, and he was a, a pudgy guy, and uh, had a, an infectious laugh, but he was a pro wrestler. And he played bass guitar. So he, he he did a little bit of everything. He was these jack of all trades, you know, where he'd be uh, making a little bit of money at the guitar store, uh, giving bass lessons, wrestling at night as, a, you know, a little wrestling events and then had this little lighting company. And he was just, you know, uh, you know, even to this day, my wife always um, – jokes with me and says, I'm the hardest working out of work person she's ever met. That even though I might not have a job, I'm always working. And this is kind of how Eddie was all the time. He always was doing something, even though maybe he was, he was always working at being out of work, but never was out of work because he was working. And that's kind of how I do it, if that makes sense. Sounds like our friend Jim Corona. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we just we just go. Okay, you know what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, who were um, who were your influences? Did you have uh, a, a certain a certain direction or a certain person that kind of? Uh, I mean, musically, I guess is really the question here. Um, we all uh, hear things, and they kind of get us started, but I, you know, I, I wonder who, who influenced you then and now, I mean, who, who is the, 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 the people that really get your juices flowing, you know, man. Um, you know, there's, there's different times where I remember being absolutely impacted by music, you know, and one of the first visuals I had was, I remember being at my, um, my aunt and uncle's house in St. Louis, and they had one of those big console record player TV combination things, you know, where you'd flip the top up, and then inside there was just uh, a couple record albums, you know, album covers. I just remember as a kid 
playing out some of those records. And the first one that just totally uh, struck me was Herb Elbert and the Tijuana Brass, you know, that girl in the whipped cream. And I was trying to stare through that whipped cream so hard, you know, and I was at that impressionable age. I put that record on and uh, uh, the song Lonely Bull. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. oh my God, that it, it's not really a rock song or anything like that, but just the melody and the power of the song and the record it kind of drew me in. It was like the, um, the entryway, if you will, you know. And then another record that was in there was a Jethro Tull record, so The Teacher. And I was struck by that uh, song. But, you know, moving on from there, you know, I, you know, I'm 60 now, so this is the, you know, late 60s, early 70s. You know, um, obviously, Jimi Hendrix was a was a big deal. He was changing the landscape, you know, but I. The first the next record that really blew me away was Jeff Beck, Blow by Blow. I got that when I was like 14 years old and that really started taking me a guitar in, in places. And then another record I heard that changed me at that time was um, Steve Morris with a band called Dixie Dregs. And so I really loved this fusion kind of just guitar centric, no real vocals. And maybe that was Herb Albert that did that because it wasn't about singing. It was about the music. You know, I, I never was uh, so much into the vocals, you know, in terms of what the meaning of the words were. I always listen to music as the vocals as a melody line. You know, I never attached any emotional thing to it. So, but most music I'm, att I'm attracted to is uh, instrumental kind of stuff. So, you know, and then Jeff Beck was one thing because he had a unique style. And Steve Morris was another thing because he brought in all this world music and these brogue and these kind of European kind of Irish you know, and Scotch-Irish kind of melodies and some of his stuff. But his playing was so off the charts to me. And what really struck me as a kid was I couldn't find this music on the dial at all. But if I listened to a, a commercial, like on a Saturday afternoon, I would hear uh, a drag racing, one day, one day only, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then in the background, I would hear and I'd go, oh, that's a, a Steve Morris track. Or that's a, you know, I could hear these artists, but I never heard it up front. You know, I, you know, I, it was kind of weird to me, but I, you know, I went to see him play. I'll never forget. I went to a club, uh, the, the club owner or manager was our manager of our little band. And I was like, Hey man, uh, can you reserve a table? I'll pay to get in. I didn't want to get in for free. You know, I want, you know, I wanted to, you know, whatever it took, just hold me a table. I'm coming with five or six people. And it was a thousand seat club and I got there and there was nobody there. There was like less than a hundred people there. So, you know, there's my reserved table, but I really didn't care. I, I went and sat on the dance floor and then after I sat down there, you know, a few other people at club sat down there and I sat just looking up at this guy play and oh my God, it was, uh, it was religious to me. Now I, I also realized that I would never be able to play like this, you know what I mean? But God that I love, I love the sound and I love the whole thing. And then the show ended, I went up and I shook his hand and I was like, man, this is one of the greatest things in the world to me. So uh, things like that really uh, influenced me and Jeff Beck. I went to at the Auditorium Theater, which is one of the greatest theaters in in 
the country, if not the world. And I went and saw uh, Jeff Beck and Jan Hammer, I think it was 16, do the blow-by-blow record. And that was just another one of those mind-blowing events, you know. I just got pulled into doing one of those 10 albums in 10 days kind of thing. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. There, there, there a lot there of was. records. Yeah. 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 I was, a I was in Wired. Yeah. Wired yeah. And, and What If by the Dregs. Oh, actually, Wired. That's the one I saw. I'm sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I, a lot of the records, I saw you posting those, and those were all uh, changing records for me. I got to tell oh, you. Oh, yeah. My life. Yeah. yeah, they're just uh, amazing. I saw the Dregs open for the Doobie Brothers with twenty six thousand people wow. at, at SPAC. Wow. We were sitting yeah, on the, awesome. sitting on the lawn, and uh, they were just wild, and and we went nuts. They yeah. actually they actually rec- recognized that this is for those lunatics on the up in the lawn there. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to wander in just with one of my questions that I have for uh, usually for backline guys, but because you've worn so many different hats, I was wondering uh, what are your thoughts about musical techs versus technical techs? I mean, you know, I started as a backline tech, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I was doing a little bit of lighting, but actually backline and the first tours I did were all as a backline tech. So mm-hmm. the first national tour I did was Ario Speedwagon. Um, uh, I, I think you can tune a pay, piano, but you can't tune a fish or something mm-hmm. like that. 1980. Mm-hmm. And I was working for a band called 707 and I was doing keyboards and guitars and we, they opened up for the tour and I, and I drove the bobtail and did the whole country, Binghamton, New York to California, I drove mm-hmm. the whole thing. And that was a really great experience for me. Then after that, I was backline on um, Ted Nugent, I think, with Crocus, with the Swiss band. And then I, then I did the Diary of a Madman tour uh, with this band called um, Starfighters. And the guitar player was Stevie Young, which was Malcolm Young's nephew. And I was doing guitars on that. And um, I'll never forget that, you know, Randy Rhodes um, couldn't hear himself and they wouldn't get him any more gear. So he asked if he could borrow some. So I would put a 412 cabinet and a head in the pit and they would send me a line and then uh, that would kick back. So when Randy would lean over the edge of the stage, he could hear himself solo. And I would sit in the pit to wait to grab that amp and I would watch him. And it was just, it was unbelievable but then years later when malcolm um started to have his uh, mental problems stevie young became malcolm in acdc and uh i was his guitar tech when i when i was a kid and i think the first time it started to happen i went to acdc show and i think i was the only one in, in the audience that knew that that wasn't malcolm young up there that that was stevie young up there the nephew you know what i mean there was a lot of uh, pretty wild, uh, oh. wild stuff at that time. But anyway, the, back to the question, you know. Yeah. So I was a backline tech for a long time. And I, I, the way I understood the question was, uh, like, uh, technical ability as opposed to, like, uh, you know, emotion, if you will, or or, or playing from the heart. Is that kind of the thing? You know? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there are people. I mean, there are guys I know. I actually am looking at one right now in in my little monitor here at myself 
where, uh, you know, I've been doing guitars for 33 years and I still can't play a lick, you know? I mean, I don't think that I'm non-musical by any means. Right. But, um, but I was just thinking, you know, because I mean, there are other people that I think I was having a discussion with uh, Bobby Schneck, who who's ended up uh, in the last few bands he's been in. He's ended up playing with the band uh, more more often than not, um, you know, and, and at, a, at a very high level. But I mean, I'm saying, you know, when you've got a guy who can go out and find that sweet spot on stage for you and. And, uh, and eliminate the problems and shorten the sound check time, you know, because they know exactly what it is, what it needs to happen so that you can, can do it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know because I, over the years I've evolved and I've gone back and forth on this. And as I talked about with, with somebody's uh, technical ability and the way they play like a Steve Morris, you know, it's just, just so phenomenal and clean, you know, I mean, not clean in terms of overdrive or, you know, I just mean their playing ability. And I was so blown away by that and drawn into that for the longest time. And then, um, then there's guys like a Jeff Beck kind of thing. They sometimes uh, have these ability to use the guitars like a noisemaker and do things that, that, you know, change the emotion or the mood of a song and they're not really playing clean things. They're wanging on the vibrato or, or doing interesting sounds. You know what I mean? Right. So I was torn. I was torn. For the longest time, I hated anybody, you know, where I could, like, hear the mistakes and I could hear the rawness of the guitar and just, uh, and sometimes it grated on me, you know, and I wanted that kind of clear fusion-y kind of sound. But now as I mature, I kind of enjoy the rawness and the craziness and the emotion of stuff sometimes uh, more than the cleanness. Like sometimes somebody plays really clean. Um, and I think I heard Richie Blackmore put it kind of well. Uh, you don't hear them like reaching for some, something. And sometimes the guys that are playing more raw, you know, they create these um, – moments where you can tell they're trying to reach for something. Now they might fail, but they're trying to take it to a new place. And sometimes there's something in that, you know what I mean? And these other guys are virtuosos and they play, but it'll leave you flat. Now I don't want to, I don't want to speak ill of anybody here, but I'm going to use this as an example. I'm going to use Steve Vai as an example, because when I watch Steve Vai or I watch his videos and I watch this guy playing and watch his whole career, I'm blown away. This guy is just unbelievable, you know. What a great player, just phenomenal. But if I buy his records and I put out a song and I can't listen to him, I don't know if that makes sense. That's nothing against him. It's just the way the music strikes me. Even though his, his technical ability is just stunning and his mind is stunning, but it's not very musical to me sometimes. I don't know if that makes sense, you know, and then I hear other guitar players that are three chord, you know, crunchers. And I think, wow, you know, um, there's, there's a rawness or there's something there in it. And, uh, it sounds better to me. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, uh, you know, I've gone back and forth on that, you know, you know, it's, it's been said, uh, probably not with a bit of humor in their, uh, in their, in their hearts, but uh, every now and then you hear this. Without lights, it's just radio. 
Right. Is that, now, is that true? Or, I mean, are, are we bringing theater to music or letting the audience witness what's going on? I mean, I mean, what, what does lighting bring to a live performance? Well, you know, and, and this is an industry that's been very good to me for a long time. You know, I mean, I've been in, in, in and around lights for, you know, well, 40 years, right? You know, and sometimes I've been doing it. Sometimes I've been observing it, right? All right. Um, lighting is an interesting thing because uh, it totally changes the emotion, everything like that. And and as a lighting director, as you just said, one of those uh, punny lines um, is people come to see the band. You know, if they wanted to hear it perfect, they, they would go home, put the CD on or whatever, put on some headphones or an old vinyl record. And they, you know, they immerse themselves in that. You can hear a perfect show in a live show. I mean, you're going to hear some perfection that happens in that moment, but you're coming to see that artist play. Now the idea is how is that going to be presented? Is the lighting, the show and there's music in, in, in that embedded in that or um is the artist the show and you're going to illuminate that artist you know now most all the artists i've worked with you know not to sound boastful but i've been very lucky to work with a lot of platinum uh, iconic artists so uh it's not about the lights it's about watching the band you know and so i've always lit it from that perspective i'm not one of those flashy kind of flashy kind of lighting guys but i mean without lights yeah it's a radio show <laughs> i mean but there some people have taken advantage of that some people have turned the lights off and i've been with artists who you know the guy sends someone out to me and said turn the lights off and they're they're playing in the dark you know and as a lighting person it's pretty it's pretty scary to be sitting out there with 30,000 people and the artists in the dark, I got to tell you. So, uh, but uh, those are, those are other stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's funny. I remember seeing going to a Genesis show back before they were popular and Alan Owen was still the uh, Alan, yeah. designer. And um, they actually, that tour was before there was moving lights and they had those mirrors built into the yeah, truss. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. Use yeah. 5K lamps or some <laughs> huge lamp in the back and they'd be bouncing it off these mirrors. And it was yeah. amazing. But I, I, yeah. I, even his even his between song washes got my attention. You know, yeah. I mean, he was, uh, he definitely knew what he was doing. Alan is who got me... As, to be a board operator, by the way. Did mm -hmm. you know this? I don't know if you know this story. So, I don't you know, so. so God bless him. And, you know, his nickname was the GOAT, I believe, uh, back in the day. And he was one of these, uh, you know, proud Texas kind of guys, you know. Uh, so, and, and nothing that's neither here nor there. He just had was a personality, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and so Little Feet, got back together, right? And I was working for that management company with um, James Taylor at the time, right? So, um, and James Taylor uh, really kind of changed my direction in the industry because I'd come from heavy metal and rock and roll for a long time. I was doing, as I said, the Ozzy Osbourne and New Gen, Judas Priest. And, you know, I was doing all that kind of stuff for a while. And then 
somehow I got on a Julian Lennon tour, and that was that was interesting. And with the first Verilites, if you will, you know, the first uh, twos and two Cs or whatever they were when it was a big deal, you know. And then, um, then uh, um, James Taylor's management was getting, uh, they were saying, hey, Little Feet's going to get back together post Lowell George, right? And, you know, on the side asked me if I would be uh, interested in doing this, you know, for the Let It Roll record, right? And Alan was the, um, uh, was the uh, LD. I, I, I'm sorry, now I'm having a brain lapse. What was his name again? Keep Alan thinking. Owens. Yeah, Alan Owens, that's right. I keep thinking the goat, sorry. Uh, so anyway, Alan was the LD, right? So, so we got out there and, you know, this is, this is, not to speak ill of the dead, but Alan had come from a different era. You know what I mean? And he would sit out, you know, by the board or, you know, bottle of Maker's Mark and a, and a newspaper. And it was a two-man system, you know, and there was two bands. And it was just me and him. And, and I was dying, man. You know, I'd get the rig up and, you know, uh, you know, I'm focusing the lights in the air while I'm trying to call the guys how to, you know, from the air, how to get the, the floor lights set up. And there's all these drapes, you know, for all the different backgrounds for the records for little feet, you know, that waiting for Columbus and sailing shoes and all this stuff, uh, you know, tracks and stuff. And, um, man, I, I was just dying out there, you know? So, at the end of the tour, we were at the Stone Pony in uh, in New Jersey, and we did the last show, and Alan comes up to me, and he goes, well, he goes, we just got our tour bonus. I go, yeah, what's that? He goes, we got fired, and I'm like, oh, shit, okay. And, I, you know, I just busted my balls for the last time, so I was kind of gutted, you know. And then um, about three weeks later, I got a phone call from Billy, from Billy Payne, and, and he goes, you know, Rich, he goes, you know, we didn't get fired. He got fired, you know. And this is nothing against Alan. He was a genius. He changed this industry and did a lot of great things. I'm not sp- trying to speak ill of him at all. Right. But my work didn't go unnoticed. And so the uh, band has said, well, we're going to go out again, and uh, we want you to run the lights. And I was like, well, I, I haven't done this before. So, you know, they're like, we don't care. You're going to do it. So it was really – it was Alan, you know, and then Little Feet, who um, who allowed me to sit out there and uh, and uh, run the show, you know. And then so we had another guy design the lighting rig, and I ran the board, and he kind of showed me how to hit the cues. And then they went out again, and Little Feet said, um, "We don't want that other guy back. We want you to do the whole thing," you know. And so that was that was really amazing. Uh, 25, 25 years later, I was at uh, Byron Blues Fest in Australia, you know, and, and uh, I, I saw the guys there. We were playing like a day before or after, and I went up and I, you know, I just had to say, you know, thanks to Paul, God rest his soul. God and, you know, thank those guys for, um, you know, for giving me that shot to, to do that and have the faith in me to do that. That was really, 
really something else. So those are the guys who changed my trajectory. And what a great band. Oh, my God, those were great times. I know you had some little feet time. Oh, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they trusted. I mean, I started off as a guitar tech and then ended up being a production manager. And then the last yeah. time I worked for him, I was a truck driver. Oh, man, yeah. So, you know, Absolutely. I've... Uh, I've done a little bit of everything with them. Yeah, they were they were amazing. The, probably one of the best bands I've ever seen. As far I, as I totally chemistry. agree. A live band and a, a musician's band, if you will. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They were just really something else. I learned so much out there. Okay, maybe a little more lighting questions here, probably. Uh, I have written down here, functional lighting, dramatic, or effect lighting. Is it sort of beyond the music, or is it... A, being like another player in the, in the band? Well, I think when, when, when you're in a magical show, I mean, to me, a, 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 a great show um, is when all the elements come together. You know, there's, uh, you know, the artists are playing, uh, the sound is on, the building has a resonance, um, the audience is just in tune and then the lighting is uh, is right there, you know the everything. But then it it transforms mechanical space into sacred space, and everybody is lifted to just to me another dimension, right? So when the lighting is in balance, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Now I have old eyes, you know, uh, and I I look at things a little bit differently. I can't handle looking at people right in front of LED walls, especially when some of the the dot pitch, if you will, is a, a little bit wider. And I see this moire around the person. And more and more lighting today is about all this LED in your face. And the band is mostly just shadows and just like a bed inside of it. But however, this is what people are looking at it. And the people are walking away and say, these shows are spectacular. And I can't even look at the stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I can't say what's good. And I'm, I've never claimed to be a good lighting director. I've been a lucky lighting director to work with so many great artists. And I don't know if that was ever for my skills. I think that was more because people said, hey, you know, if Rich has made it to this level, he already uh, can hang with us. So, you know, to be able to go from, uh, Janet Jackson to Bob Dylan to Paul Simon, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to come off with name dropping, but to go from a legend to a legend to a legend to Fleetwood Mac, you know, it's just stunning to me to be able to do that. But I only think because your your resume shows that you've been in this this style of group before. Not that you're, you know, I've never been hired because I was some great <laughs> lighting designer or director i've just been able well he's obviously floated in this level and we need somebody so let's get him over here so uh, to me it's been more luck than skill but to answer your question i mean yes to all those things you said they're all true but uh i i come from an older school way of looking at things where you you exemplify the artist and you create a mood and it's not about the lights being in your face and being like overwhelmed by, uh, you know, just like being in a gumball machine. It's almost, it's too much for me, but that's just me. 
you know. Well, that I mean, I was you sort of led into the next question, and that was basically lighting for video. It's kind of like the war of sensors, and uh, you know, there's never there's never really truly any dark. You know, I mean, there's uh, uh, yes, some people still know how still know how to do it, but it's kind of a lost art. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> as cameras changed, that really changed how. Uh, people lit shows, you know, it used to be that cameras could not pick up a lot of a light and you had to light the hell out of it. So what the audience was seeing when cameras showed up was not what was going to be broadcast or what was being projected by the camera. Right. right? So sometimes that would be uncomfortable to the audience, but it, but it had a secondary effect or what I call the secondary bounce. So if you were a dumb lighting director, and I saw a lot of guys get fired with this, you would light for your show that was intimate and beautiful and you would use these contrasts of dark and light, but that wouldn't read on the camera. And if the artist saw this, you were fired. You know what I mean? So now you were like, Oh, I got a light for the camera. Right. You know? So, um, but now cameras are so sensitive that you can go back to doing these dark and moody things. You can light a match and, you know, shoot it and make Mm -hmm. something traumatic. But that's not where lighting is gone now. Lighting is gone with this full rage in your face all the time. You know, it's just, it's amazing, you know, to to what's going on. I, I, you know, I I work in the lighting industry, so I just kind of dismiss it. When the the artist says he wants a thousand of these widgets and I know they're going to be in everybody's face, I mean, I, there's no judgment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, have more. <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny because, I mean, I've, I've seen your work and, you know, there are times when I've seen you use, um, see, I've seen you use uh, LEDs, like, you know, for, for certain effects that, that, that work. Like, I mean, I remember, I remember you having some LED floor lights doing the curtains and stuff and, and it really it really does sharpen things up. And then you were using the warmth from the other kind of lights for the artist, you know, right. whereas, yeah, I mean, by God, if you're, if you're going out with a 60 or 70 year old person, you want to make sure that they look good, not scary. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, the young kids can, you can do interesting things with their faces and on camera, they'll look really good with the older folks. You have to be sensitive to, uh, will they look good? And you have to keep that kind of, a profile. Now, I I cut my teeth with little feet. And the thing about little feet was, you know, the audience came um, with a fan in mind, you know, you know, one part of the audience are drum fans for Richie Hayward. So they, they want to see Richie, they, they're not looking for a shadow of Richie up there. I mean, you could do it for a little bit. And some people are Billy Payne fans, and some people are Paul Brer fans, and some people, you know, whatever. So I always lit the band that no matter what was going on, color-wise or whatever like that, you could always watch that artist and watch what he was doing in that mm-hmm. that time. Like, to me, the band was important, not like an artist, if you will. You right. know what I mean? So even when I've worked with an artist, I've still always considered the band, you know, a part a part of the whole thing, you know, like I've never been into just lighting the front guy and not have you be able to look over the shoulder and see, uh, you know, um, you know, whatever great guy was sitting behind him <laughs> playing that beat that only, right. you know, you know, that you're, you've been waiting your whole life to go, Oh, how does he do that? You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. I, 
I've always given a little respect for that. You know, well, I'm not saying that's I'm not saying that's the best lighting either. I've right. seen a lot of people do it the other way, and it's dramatic. And I go, oh, I wish I could do that, but it, somehow I can't. I can't bring well, myself to do it. It's like I I actually remember um, a story about um, it was years ago that. Dylan was appearing on a uh, uh, an awards show here in the states, but he was in Australia right. on tour. Right. So they they brought him into a, a a space and they set up a lighting rig and they had the work lights and everything that were going on and and um, he of course was looking for less and right. he says, "Well, I to turn this light off, turn this light off, turn turn this light off." And eventually, uh, as the story goes, the only thing that was left on were the fluorescent work lights. And he was right. like, "Yeah, that's what I'm looking for." Yeah. You know? So it was probably. I mean, I remember seeing the performance <clears throat> and it being very jarring with all of the other slick, hip slick and cool stuff that was appearing on there. That all of a sudden yeah. you saw this this icon. Just uh, yeah. in a very, very interesting light, so to speak. D- Dylan took me through the ringer with that kind of stuff. I got to tell you, all the time, man. Mm-hmm. And those were uh, incredible conversations and uh, incredible emotional, you know, trip. That that changed my life in, in a big way. And he did that with me a few times where he'd sit out and like, okay, you know, do this, do that. But, I mean, I could go – we could go into a whole thing right. about exactly. that. You know. You know, the only other thing I've got here in my little lighting corner was the science of light and the human mind. I mean, where you can literally do things with light and timing, which can fool people in the audience. I mean, you can really make this these efforts to light the room or light the our performers or uh, sort of changing the scale of what's going on you know i find 100%. it i find it fascinating when they uh, uh people are using a, a, a making a rig look really small and 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 very intimate and then all of a sudden you know get two-thirds through the show and all of a sudden it it changes you yeah know, because of the patience of the, the designer and and the uh, operator a hundred percent. And the light frequencies, because, you know, ultraviolet, infrared, you know, your eye has to shift, right? you know, on different sides of the spectrum to be able to do this. So you can really stretch the stage or move the stage or shrink the stage by how you use these colors and their combinations. And of course, there's an emotional attachment between a warm song and a cool song, you know what I mean? And so you can totally change, you know, your your mood and your emotion based on this and how you draw someone into the picture and and you know by this uh form of scale if you will you know you draw someone in and then you hit them with something and knock them back right. you know with light absolutely you know i mean that's all part of the part of the deal you know Tell me one thing that most people, including the people that you've worked with, wouldn't think of you. I mean, what I mean, what would surprise them about about you? Well, I, boy, that's an interesting question because everybody has a different way of seeing people, you know. So, um, and I, I, I'm totally too open sometimes. You know what I mean? Like I, I. Re- I have nothing to hide. So I don't know what would, I don't know what would surprise people. Cause once you know me for a little bit, I don't think anything I do surprises you. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. It depends on who you are. 
you know. Well, I'll tell you a good example because we and we alluded to this a little bit. You know, I have a a history, you know, of my of uh, drug abuse and and drinking. So there's people that know me today, and you know, I, I'm bald and I'm older. So there people who know me from way back then will say, "Well, what do you mean, old rich or new rich?" So people who know new rich never knew old rich. And sometimes they'll hear a story and they'll be going, no way. <laughs> you know what I mean? And people who know old rich, if they meet me today, will be like, wow, man, I don't, you know, like, I don't know this rich. You know what I mean? So there is that kind of thing. You know, sometimes I'll be in line at customs and the guy will say, well, you were arrested in this <laughs> And I go arrested or convicted, and there's 30 people behind me, and they're like, "What? What? You know, what are you talking about, Rich?" I'm like, "Well, sir, if I was arrested, I go, I don't remember, you know, and you know, I don't want to tell them, you know, which time, you know what I mean? So, you know, they're like, "Well, if I was arrested, I would remember what it was for," and I'm like, "Well, I don't know, it's too long ago." But the people behind <laughs> me are like, "What? The, what the hell are you talking about?" So there's those kind of things, you know. <laughs> so. Um, what is uh, one thing that uh, you've been involved in? It could be an event or a song or a, a tour that is widely, which is widely known, but that you were a part of. Every now and then I, I find uh, people, uh, I'd go, wow, I didn't know that you did that. You know, I don't know. You know, I, I've done a lot of big, you know, well, not a lot, but, you know, some, big stuff and some good artists, but I don't know how much stuff I've done that's documented. And, you know, I've had, you know, like the, the, the Alan Owens story about being, you know, let go and stuff like that. You know, that's part, part of that job is about being uh, let go or that seat is, is always temporary. You know what I mean? Uh, right. Artists see somebody new or you move on. So, um, I mean, there's things that I that are out there that I have never watched or looked at because uh, because it's painful <laughs> to me, you know, either by the way I was or what I did. But it, but I know it's out there, and people will say, "Oh man, I watched this video last night of this," and you know, I don't say anything, but I was like, "Yeah, you know, like I did that." You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I, I don't I, I don't think of any any like. Uh, glorifying ones right now off the top of my head, you know? So what's your proudest, proudest moment, professional or personal? I mean, uh, it doesn't have to be work related at all. Proudest moment. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know about pride, but I, there's so many religious moments. Remember I talked about like being this transported kind of thing, you know, like I remember being out with Carol King once and uh, we were playing at the uh, Beacon Theater, and it was her birthday. And I remember that James had come, and we rehearsed him, but she didn't know that he was there, you know. So during You Got a Friend in the second verse, he walked out, you know, and sang that verse to her. And, oh, and she cr- breaks down crying. Whatever. But, like, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it. There's just so many of these moments that I've been at, you know, with Sting, because I spent many, many years with him, um, and, and, you know, like that show, a uh, little feet, some religious shows. And I mean, just so many moments were just, uh, I was just, uh, what do you say? So, uh, 
grateful to have been in those moments. And I think that's what, like you and me, get addicted to. How many shows have we sort of decided or been around and we, we were in that moment where everything was firing all cylinders? And there's, that's greater than any drug or drinking that I've ever done in my life. Those are some of the greatest highs, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, that, that would be it. But I can't put my finger on any, you know, any specific experiences like that. Well, you know, I know you're a, f- a family man, and uh, I know you've had a, uh, a love-hate relationship with the road at yeah. certain points of your life. But what, All kind the time. Of, what kind of a person does it take for the constant movement of the road? There's plenty of us who have a certain wanderlust that need to, need to sort of travel. But, I mean, what kind of person well, does it take to survive the lifestyle that we have? Well, you know, if you develop it, if you get into it, <clears throat> you get what's called, I call, a hobo mentality. And the hobo mentality is, you know, once you jump on the train and you start getting on the excitement and be on the journey, over a certain amount of time, you're going to long for being home. You know what I mean? And or some sort of place that you can call home for a little while. So you're going to jump off the train and you, you're going to want to set some roots up. But once you do that, you start to long for the road again. You know what I mean? And you get caught in this yin-yang where you get home for a little bit and you start getting shaky because there's no work on the books. And you're like, oh, man, I got to get out and do this. Then you get out on something, you know, short or long. And after a while, you're like, you know, fuck this, man. I got to get home. So I did that for 40 years, you know, where I had to get out there and I wanted to get home all at the same time. Now, when you're first starting out, the, the excitement of getting on a few tours is just phenomenal. But what starts to happen right away is all the day-to-day things that you were connected to at home start to change. And all your best friends and everybody that you know, when you get back, you're disconnected and you become a stranger in your own home and in your own environment. And it's hard to reconnect at the same place that you were before because you've missed so much. So now you start to think of being on the road and you make really wonderful relationships and you learn how to live with people that you'll see for like, you know, three weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, uh, a month or a year. Then you won't see that guy for five years and then you see him again and you pick right up where you left off and you're fast friends again. Yep. So how you have these dynamics and these friendships totally uh, change. And of course there's drugs and addiction are another path people get because they can, it could be a wild party for you. You out there. So that's where your excitement is, you know, and, uh, and you know, some people don't, they get lost in all kinds of other things, but uh, you know, it, it, it impacts, um, everybody in different ways. A lot of people on the road are, you know, I call them pirates, if you will, that they're living on the edge of society and they just don't live in traditional roles. And the, uh, and a lot of brilliant people out there, you know, there, there's four kinds of technicians. There's more than this, but basically there's four. There's uh, the pure personality tech, they suck at what they do, but there's such a joy to be around that people take them on the road anyway. Then there's the, the less than 50-50. They're more personality than technical, but they know enough to hold things together. Then there's the plus 50-50, who's pretty technically, uh, you know, has great technical ability, but they have a decent personality. And then there's the pure technical guy 
who's total technical, but he's a total pain in the ass to be around, you know, and he kind of zero personality sucks. But you're going to fall within one of those four of the spectrum if you're if you're out on the road, you know. I think I think my my type would change depending on my mood in the day. Yeah, I always like to think I was somewhere uh, in the fifty fifty range, either more personality than technical, or a little bit more technical than personality. You know, but in the middle, I'm definitely an in the middle guy. I've always said that. I mean, the the biggest part of, the biggest part of my job has always been creating the. Um, sort of a psychological safe zone for, for someone, you know, to give them and, you know, being able to read someone knowing when they could use a joke or, you know, you know, something along those lines. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Do you have any hobbies on the road? Is there anything that you do now? I mean, do you, I mean, I know there are plenty of people who play golf or collect certain things. And I was wondering if you had something like that. You know, I carried a guitar with me, so, you know, I would play in my room a little bit. But that only started in the last, oh, you know, I only started playing again in the last, you know, I don't know, let's say six or seven years, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for the most part, it was just get out with some friends. And my hobby was, I mean, there's just after a while, you know, you go to certain places places after a while and you know where these cafes are and you know where this kind of little museum or this park is you know what I mean so get together with a couple friends you know maybe go out and find um you know some coffee with some friends and you know we've talked about the recovery kind of thing Mm -hmm. you know call up the guys that are have the same those kind of interests and and say hey why don't we meet at 11 o'clock let's get out so I guess that would be like my hobby you know and uh, lunches and dinners and taking a few sites, you know, I mean, the, the thing about the road life is, you know, when, when you're at the uh, pyramids or you're at Sydney opera house, or you're, you know, at these places, it's just not like a dream now, you know, you've, you're, you've walked these places, you've been out there, you know, I, you know, I've probably been to about 50 countries and you've probably been to way more than that, you know, but, you know, we've had a, a, an ability to get out there and and not just, you know, not on hearsay or what we saw in the news. We've been in these places and we've met these cultures and we've been able to interact with some of these things. And uh, that to me is the greatest gift of, of being on the road. Is I, I don't speak from, you know, what I saw or read in a book. You know, it's because I've been there enough mm-hmm. times, you know, so that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the element of crew, you know, is it a team or is it sometimes it seems to be a collection of coordinated loners? You know, what, well, which, one, which one of those is more productive than your, in your I, eye? I, I did mention the pirate ship kind of thing. So, you know, uh, you know, same thing. If you're on a pirate ship, are these guys every man for himself or are they working together as a team? Right. You know, so there's a little bit of both, you know, on a long tour the people in the beginning who are your best friends at the end you hate and the people at the beginning you thought sucked usually end up being your best friends. So mm-hmm. that's on a long run, you know, but on a, uh, on a short run or the best cruise that I've ever been on in my life that I, that I uh, reflect back on, I had the best time was a small crew. You go in in the morning and let's say I'm the lighting guy. Well, we got a lot of shit to do in the morning to get things going so you can do your job as a backline tech. 
Well, I've had fun where the backline guys come in and they hang a few lights and they hang out. And then we all go over and help the guys stack some sound when you used to do that. And everybody helped each other. And on the way out, nobody stood there and bitched and say, get your shit out of the way. You know, they, they helped roll. Is this okay? If I know if I help you get this done, I can get my job done faster. Mm-hmm. And when a, a group of guys come together with that kind of attitude and you're working as a team, that's the most fun I've had. But there's some guys that are departmentalized and, and I see it more in the younger guys. Well, fuck that. I don't get paid for that. That's not my job. I'm not doing it. So I'm going to stand here with my arms folded and you know, this shit's in my way. Oh my God, I, I don't have any patience for that. You know, when somebody does that to me, I said, well, go over there and fucking move it. Grab a few hands. You're standing there with six hands waiting to do your job and you can move that set card out of the way, right? Oh, it's not my job, you know, anyway. So uh, th- there is both, but the crews that work together to me are the best, you know. I had a, I had a recovery guy I knew back in Los Angeles who used to say, if you see a toothpick on the ground, pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, and the question then at that point was, why? And his answer was, so someone else doesn't have to. Yeah, that's right. I love it. That's it. Yeah. Let's see. What do we got here? Um, you know, the element of trust um, out there for shows and for creating something, for the protection of uh, personal life, yours and theirs, um, you know, that kind of relationship you get into with, um, with uh, other crew people and with the performers, um, it, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, like, I mean, like we've already been saying, um, we, we do our best to get, that, get into that sort of sacred zone. And, um, and sometimes the, 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 uh, the, you have to trust the, the, the artist, and sometimes the artist has to trust you to do what's best in a, in a certain situation. But I mean, how do you, I mean, I really think it is, I think of it as a sacred trust, you know, that we get to get to, I mean, obviously I think working with bands and, uh, and shows is a little bit different from doing, uh, industrials. I mean, there's a lot less of that kind of, a um, exchange between your clients and, and the people who are executing the show. Yeah. I think I'm not sure exactly where this, if this question has anywhere to go at this point, but I mean, well, I have, I have, I have comments on it. Okay. Great. Yeah. So, you know, there's some things, so let's, you know, we all know the created this music and this music in a way has transcended something and it has brought people together that want to see this music or enjoy this sacred time, if you will, you know, they they were moved by this one way or another. Now you find yourself in the company of this artist, right? You know, and you're there as a support staff, you know, because that's what we do. We're crew guys. We're not in the band, but we're, uh, we're going to allow the band to be able to present this and make this magical experience happen where that's what we're all trying to do. Right. So now there's these intersecting rings. There's the production side of things. And there's the music side of things and our rings overlap and we get to, you know, have some intimate conversations or hear some stories and, and, or have some private moments where we are in this bubble 
with some of the most incredible artists of the world. So now there becomes a sacred trust between that. You know, we're not going to talk about everything that we've done. I've done some unbelievable, mind-blowing things with some unbelievable artists who in some ways, they just want to be like me for a little bit. They just want to let their hair down and have some fun. And I'm going to allow them to do that, but I'm not going to go talking about that kind of stuff. So there's a trust that happens there, right? Now, the real balancing point to me is that the production side of things, and this comes from the production manager down, can have its own politics and can have issues. The band can have politics and issues, but these two things have to be separated no matter how much we are engaged because crew politics cannot end up in the band politics of things. And band politics cannot end up in the crew politics of things. We travel separately for a reason. We, a lot of times we stay at different hotels for a reason. Smaller tours, you know, we're kind of all together sometimes on the same bus. But the big ones, there's reasons why we do that. But, you know, uh, there's intimate relationships between crew and artists, and those are a little bit sacred and fantastic. And then there's the crew relationships and the artist relationships. And there has to be a certain amount of separateness between that. So there's all kinds of, uh, you know, do, do you know which way to go? I mean, there's fault lines that are unseen sometimes, but you really have to be careful where you are with, with that kind of trust and, and and what stories and what information needs to be passed along or enjoyed. I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Did that that answer uh, an ambiguous question? Yeah. As ambiguous as I come up with here. Yeah. This is, this is sort of a hard question, but um, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. What about when it goes bad? Do you take it or do you walk? Do you confront what's going on or do you stuff your feelings and, and say, I just won't say yes to ever doing this again after it's finished? Well, I've done, I've done both, you know, and, and really some unceremonious ways, you know, I've been confronted by, you know, some of the biggest artists in the world and called out on stage and man, it is, I told you about the Dylan story with them uh, turning the lights off in a show. You know, we were in Israel in Tel Aviv, I believe, and he wasn't feeling well, but I didn't know that. And I had lit him in a way that he wasn't happy. And he sent someone out to me to, to, to tell me to turn the lights off. Now, well, there's 30,000 people in a stadium, you know what I mean? And they've come to see this artist. And when you're turning the lights off on an icon and you're sitting there, people are kind of like booing <laughs> behind you because they can't see what's going on. This is this really tears at you. You know what I mean? So you want to just say, well, fuck it. If he doesn't want a lighting guy, why am I here? You know, I should just leave, you know, but you are with an icon right now. This is what he asked. Do you do the job and just disconnect yourself from the art? Or do you say this is a bridge too far and I can't take this anymore? You know? So, you know, after going through all these Dylan things, uh, and, and the first time that I walked, I was, uh, with Brian May actually from Queen and I, you know, this was in my drinking days, old rich. And I don't know what happened, but I was in a Germany and I, and I just had gone over the edge personally. And one day I just decided not to leave the hotel and I'll never forget, um, the guy, uh, Paul McCartney's 
um, tour manager was a tour manager out there. I'll never forget the guy standing over my bed saying, you know, I should kill you right now because I just wasn't going to leave and go to any more shows. And I just left in the middle of the tour. Now, this is a horrible thing to do because if you get a reputation for doing this, for flaking out, people don't want to take you on the road anymore, mm -hmm. you know? So anyway, I, I got myself straightened up over some time and now I'm on the road and now, you know, you're working with these unbelievable artists. So uh, on Fleetwood Mac, I remember uh, Lindsay at the end of my first show sold out audience. You know, I had, I had faded out a spotlight a little early on a queue and I might've done other cues that were wrong, but I actually thought I did a great job that night for just walking in and running the show. But Lindsay at the end of the show goes, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I want you to meet our new lighting director, Rich. Uh, I'll see you at the end of the show. And then Stevie Nicks goes up to the mic. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the sound guy turns to me and goes, good luck, man. He goes, I did this for six weeks, you know. So I got to go back there. And this guy's calling me every name in the book, you know. And, hey, you know, part of your, um, uh, you know, your emotions, your ego and uh, you know, you know, you're trying hard and part of you just wants to run, you know, fuck it, you know, window or aisle seat on a Greyhound bus. You're thinking, you know, which one am I going to pick? Right. Yeah. And then the other part of you is like, Hey, you know what? I'm here. I got the job. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? They fire me. You know, uh, I, I, I could give a shit. I'll go home right now. I've been fired from as big, if not bigger jobs than this. And I've taken many jobs with that attitude where I, I, I started Mellencamp that way. The LD before me flaked out and left. I was at the airport and the, um, the management calls me up and says, you got to get back here. We can't find the LD. Well, I didn't know the show and there was no cues in the console. And they're like, well, uh, can you run this? And I'm sure I did. I ran the show. And they're like, well, we don't know you know, if we're going to keep you or not. And I'm like, well, I don't give a shit. I was at the airport already. You know what I mean? So I've been on uh, both sides of those equations. And guess what? After that Mellencamp thing, I was there for seven years after that. I mean, I, I stayed there. Fleetwood yeah. Mac, I was there for another year. But I started to, after Dylan, and and then I don't know if we're supposed to mention these artists' names at all. So I, I don't know. I'm not trying to name drop or anything like that. But Anyway, what, what I came to in my mind was the hero's journey. What I came to is like when you read these mythologies as a kid and you think about, you know, you get to this bridge and there's a troll under the bridge and he jumps out and it gives you this fucking tricky little thing. And if you don't get past it, you know, then the witch shows up and then this. And so I realized that these are preparatory stories to get you ready because the ogre is right there. The troll is right there and in your fucking face. And what are you going to do now? Are you going to turn around and not finish the journey? Or are you going to try to figure out how to get around it and move forward? And so I kind of used that as the, my blueprint that when I'm in, in, in some unbelievable artists and they're in my face, uh, you know, screaming the shit at me and it's up, rightfully so sometimes that I'm thinking, well, okay, let's see how do we uh, navigate this one, you know? And then one more to that is that over time, I've noticed that there's, there's three qualities that God gives an artist. You know, obviously there's more than this, but 
three basic qualities, and I'm not a religious man at all, but these qualities are uh, ability, looks, and personality. And none of the artists I work with, very few get all three. Mm-hmm. Many are idiot savants, and they are just beyond a language that I can kind of uh, speak because they, they know where to find this music and bring it out. But they don't necessarily have the same personality like you and I are having this discussion right now, you know. And some of them are fantastic-looking people, and they know how to present music, but they don't write this music. Someone else wrote it. James is a fantastic guy, but he doesn't write much music, James Taylor. You know what I'm saying? but he knows how to present it and it's unbelievable. You know what I mean? And he's got a great personality and other people we work with have writing ability and can present music, but they're a pain in the ass and they suck as an individual. You, you wouldn't want to talk to him. So sting is maybe one of the few guys that I work with that has all three good looking guy, nice personality. And he's a, he's a genius as well. I've worked with a few more, but Rarely does an artist get all three. Does that it's, make sense? There's nothing worse than watching a millionaire have a bad time on stage. Oh, tell me about it. For the goofiest reasons. Mm-hmm. This business, I mean, the idea of security, the idea of, you know, obviously being a, a freelancer and having repeat business with, uh, with an act or something. Um, you know, what do we do? I mean, you know, I'm obviously I've known people who had ties to a management f- firm or a production manager and they keep getting work over and over again. But, yeah. um, you know, I mean, it, I get people that ask me questions about how to get into the business and, and how do you, you know, find some security. And it's just like, you know, I, 33 years later. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I do get repeat business with people, which is uh, a real blessing, but, um, but I mean, what, what do you, what do you, I mean, obviously, I mean, we've talked about, you know, we've both done industrials. We've, we've both done music tours and uh, you know, I mean, for some people it's, I mean, I think the interaction of working with a band or working with an artist is, is, is a whole other um, dynamic that goes on with, let's say, I mean, you, you can deal with production managers who, um, for lack of a better term, if you, uh, I'm one of our friends actually used this, um, this, this, uh, this uh, comparison, which was, uh, we were working on this and uh, we were trying to do our best for the artist. And, uh, and my friend said, you know, if the, pr- the production doesn't care if there's these people on stage or if there was a brand new Ford F-150 on stage, you know, it's the same, the same oh, job for them. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're sitting there, you know, they think that we're being, um, you know, weird about it. And it's like, Hey, let I me, mean, great example. Uh, go out there. You've got this beautiful stage design that somebody did and they put down Marley all over the floors. And, uh, and the, and the question was, where's his carpet? He always performs on a carpet and production was like, yeah, we have whatever, man, you know, you know, and we're going, no, nah, you're, you're going to have a problem with this. We can kind of, we're kind of letting you know that you should probably be ready. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course the artist shows up and they go, where's my carpet? Yeah. Right. And, um, uh, 
and all of a sudden those guys were in motion. You know, they wouldn't listen to yeah. what we had to say about it. But when the artist brought it up, you know, you do your best to, to, to try to hit people to what's going on. And uh, it doesn't always happen. Well, I can, I can speak to this a little bit. Like, you know, I'm doing 20 years of music, 10 years of corporate, and, and always a little bit of corporate in between. And then another 10 years of music. I, in 2008, when the economy crashed, I went back to music. And my first gig back was Clapton and Jeff Beck you know, uh, tour. So, and I thank God that I had a toe dipped into the music. And then I picked up on the, the, um, Bob Dylan thing, you know, but I was doing corporate for a long time. And I did come to this conclusion that if I, cause I did the NBA all-star game for a while. I did Anheuser-Busch for 10 years. I mean, some big clients and I didn't care if it was a basketball, a beer or a band. I mean, that really was the same kind of intensity and there's a lot of money and a lot of uh some of these shows in uh, in industrials are as elaborate as any music show you know what i mean they're very uh, so uh, i mean that's great business uh it 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 can suck the life out of you a while when you're in a ballroom or you're in a space for however many days and these endless rehearsals and stuff like that but still you know it's a great it's a great industry now you 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 asked earlier like how can you get in and and you know where do you hook your attach your wagon to for some longevity you know so yeah creating relationships with production managers i've seen people with long careers how you know somebody was working hard in the corner the production manager goes i want a guy like that and they grab them and have you ever been on the road before no well go pack your bags you're coming on the circus and then they're out for, you know, 20, 30 years in this, wherever this guy goes, he takes his team with him, right? Right. And then you and I talked about like, you know, Asher management or management companies. And I know you've been with a few and me too, where whatever band that management company picked up, um, you were working with those bands, you know, and they were trying to pick up new artists or old established artists. And I did that also with, you know, uh, we could mention a few companies that we worked uh, back and forth with that were more company based, not band based. And we, they had a team of people and then they just moved those teams around to those artists. Right. So, I mean, you know, all of them are good. And then of course, a lot of people come from the companies that they work with. If you got in with Claire brothers or, or PRG or upstaging or whatever like that, that's a whole nother Avenue. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, Production assistants is another one. I've seen runners become production managers, you know, and, and backline guys. I mean, you can work your way up, but mostly it's about making an impression, not being a pain in the ass and working. Uh, when, when somebody said, well, I don't know that this is possible. How are we going to do this? And, and you were the guy or gal who said, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe there is a way or let's try to figure out. And you didn't ruffle feathers, but you tried to, in a genuine fashion, make things go forward. Even if you weren't successful, people respect that, you know what I mean? And if you keep doing that around people, people pick up on that. But if you're the whiny, pain in the ass, you know, making suggestions that just made everything harder for everybody. Like if you're the carpet guy and it didn't need to be the carpet guy and the artist didn't care, that's fine. 
But if you did know better and you were trying to help things, that's even better, you know, but some people are very, very smart, but they're pain in the ass. You know what I mean? Uh, You've been with a few, right? So try not to be the pain in the ass. Try to be the helpful person. And if you know it wasn't going to work out right, great. You know, say a little comment and then just, as you said before, wait and see what happens. You know what I mean? So, and you'll go a lot further with that. The boss might even go, you know, Aaron, you did tell me that was going to be a problem and I appreciate, I should have listened. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And uh, you might find yourself on that team, you know, so. You just never know. Yeah. Yeah. um, Well, you know, this is the uh, last question I want to shoot at you here, but it's, it's a biggie. And okay. it's what's happening right now with all of us with the COVID situation. Uh, yeah. Are are we ever going to go back? Are we ever going to get a crowd well, in place and, and, and do it like we always have? Well, Aaron, God bless you. And this has been a lot of fun because it's been fun to reminisce and, you know, and talk about some of these. And we've had some wonderful times together over the years. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, in the last two weeks, I went from this is a year that I'm going to have to wait and I'm doing everything I can, you know, financially and, you know, however I can to stay afloat, you know, till next spring. And a lot of large clients, you know, I work with a big company and we have a lot of big tours and that all that stuff is moved to spring of next year, 2021, you know, just to date this recording. So we know we're talking in July of, of 2020. But what just happened in the last two weeks um, has changed my opinion on that. Now I think it's multiple years until we get back, and I'll tell you why. You know, uh, before it was announced, I started to look at, you know, our pandemic uh, numbers, and I noticed that, you know, we're going the wrong direction as a country. You know, our, our idea, right or wrong, is let's go to herd immunity. We're not going to, you know, help the folks. Let's let this thing run its course, wildfire, and then we'll be stronger and better for it. You know, but unfortunately, the rest of the world went the other way. and They tried to control these things. So it hit me, you know, soon we might not be able to get visas. And then Europe announced, the EU said, guess what? No Americans are not, they didn't point out Americans. They said any country that has an infection rate above this number is not going to be allowed. Well, we, we're in that group, right? Yeah. So I'm talking to tour managers who are trying to book things for the future, and now they can't get visas for their crews. Well, how do we get American crews over there? Well, then after that, the UK makes the same thing. And, and between you and me, I hope I'm not getting in trouble with this. Uh, you know, the tours canceled, but I was supposed to be getting on a jet in um, August, uh, going to New Zealand, but New Zealand took their rate down to zero. And even if they quarantine us for two weeks, why would, why would New Zealand let us into their country with what we're doing right now? So this totally kills international work for Americans right now. And, and unless we change our habits, this, I don't see this changing in the near future. In fact, I only see it getting worse. So now we're going to have to work industrial, corporate, and music with bands, American bands, and American companies here because why is Siemens, you know, the RSNA show here with the uh, 
with uh, scanning machines. It's a huge show in Chicago, you know, with uh, MRIs and all that stuff. 50,000 people come to the show from around the world. But why is a German company going to send their people and send those machines here to do that show? They're just not. You can go to Germany, but Americans aren't going to be able to go to Germany to see that show. And uh, one of my clients is the Stones. You know, I was at dinner with the LD the other night. He was still hopeful, but... Um, why are the stones going to come next year and maybe have an event that's going to be in the media that turned out to be a super spreading event with so many infections? They're not going to want that media attached to their name, even if they're safe, you know? So I, I just don't see how this is going to happen. And frankly, I'm trying to figure out What's going to be uh, next for me? You know, small venues. Now, I'm play I played in a hockey talk last night, and the audience was out at mostly in a patio out back, and we played on the stage. And, you know, it gives me my little music thing, and I, I get to look forward to a little show. But I don't know how I'll, I'll go back to work doing the big shows, you know what I mean? And so I'm trying to get creative with little stuff here around town because I've done this my whole life. I'm not going to Home Depot to get a job. You know, I was an independent guy for 20 years and I worked with many other companies over the years. So now it's like, you know, dad's got a barn and mom can sew. Who can put on a little show and do it safely? But this big stuff is not going to happen for a long time here, you know. So I've been trying to talk to local theaters you know, I've got plenty of stages around here. Can we set up a stage underneath a, a movie theater? You know, um, what's his name? Uh, Garth Brooks is uh, also going to, you know, play in a place and then they're going to project at all the movie theaters and people sit in their cars. But I think we could put a stage underneath the screen and during the day have some live music with people in their cars, broadcast FM, let people watch it, put some porta potties on the side that you know, that number 22 was your space 22. So you're going your own thing, order your food online and they can bring it out safely wrapped or whatever like that. I mean, there's ways that we can have some limited shows, but nothing like it was. We're not going to be in a, you know, a, a tightly packed few hundred people with this religious little smoky tightly packed thing. And we're not going to be in the 60 to a hundred thousand seat venue with all these people doing this giant thing. So, you know, what else is going to happen? You know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm caffeine fueled here. And I've been thinking a lot about, I don't know if this was an overreaction, but that's kind of how I see it right now. And let me tell you something. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I I hope I'm 100% wrong on this, but that's the way things have been shaping up in the last few weeks for me. I just, I think as Americans, we're screwed. Now, Europe might do something to have some festivals. I, I saw some guys in a little band on a Telecaster group, and the guy played a festival in Auckland the other day. Well, because they can, and yeah. they have zero infections. Well, we can't, you know what I mean? So, um you know, we're, we're really, uh, I don't think people realize what this has done to the entertainment industry here. You know, other people are going to be able to do some things and we're going to be excluded from this, except for what we can do internally here. You know, so I don't know. What do you think about that? You think that's an accurate assessment? Well, it's funny, right, right before, uh, 
we started re- recording this podcast, uh, I was watching the first Formula One race of the year with right. no with no crowd. So, right. um, you know, obviously uh, they're looking at doing events and 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 how they're going to minimize the the carnage that happens afterwards. Yeah, sports can do that. You can do a baseball game or a, a basketball game, but in that arena, I work for companies that have warehouses full of gear that is meant to present to a live audience. Right. Now, you can do that on a one-off, but why the hell are you going to tour this gear and take an American crew now? I mean, no, what? No. We're going to have to, they're going to have to, you know, there's got to be a vaccine. And of course, then we have the anti-vaccine people out there, but uh, uh, I guess it's a whole, it's all other story. But I just want to say, Rich, I love you. It's been great having some time to, to catch well, thanks up. For, and thanks for coming to Bitterman Circle. It's a privilege and an honor. And I really appreciate that you asked me, Aaron. That's really, wow. really nice. I hope that I was uh, within the bounds of this conversation. You know? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Thank you, okay, my man. friend. I will talk to you hopefully soon. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Bye.